Well, you can take your Bible, open up to Genesis 19, and if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are walking from the front here towards the back, uh, please feel free to slip your hand up in the air, and we'll make sure our a Bible gets across to you. We just want you to be able to uh, dig into God's Word with us, to read along, and to see that uh, the message we have today comes right from God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you today. We would love for you to, to take a copy of God's Word, to be blessed by it as you read it and hear from God. Well, I, I, um, I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, we were kicking off our summer series. I'm really thankful for uh, Pastor Brian and Rowan who have kicked off that series so well and been leading us through the fruit of the Spirit. And um, I feel like I'm, I'm coming back and you know you guys got to deal with such nice, sweet topics like love, joy, peace. And I really didn't want you going soft on me while I was away, so I figured I'd come back and preach judgment, <laughs> wrath. <laughs> and we're kind of taking a break from the summer series that we just started. Uh, I wanted to tie up some loose ends in the book of Genesis before we dive back into the, the fruit of the Spirit. But I actually think that, that Genesis 19 actually is a really uh, helpful pairing with the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5. And here's why. Because the fruit of the Spirit is contrasted with the works of the flesh. And it's really difficult to understand the significance of the fruit of the Spirit without understanding the significance of the works of the flesh. So while the fruit of the Spirit are the evidences of what it means to be a follower of Christ, it really shows you the Spirit's work within you, there's a contrast that we need to be aware of, and that is what Paul identifies, as I said, as the works of the flesh. And, and he says that the works of the flesh are actually antagonistic to the Spirit of God. And in Galatians 5, he, he talks about these things. You want to say, well, what are the works of the flesh? We know what the fruit of the Spirit are. We've been hearing that for three weeks. But listen to this for a moment. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. They're clear. They're obvious. It's actually not hard to see. And he goes on to describe some of them. Again, not an exhaustive list, but certainly very clear evidences of the works of the flesh. Here's what he says. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then he says this, this stunning, stunning Sentence. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things, this is the pattern and habit of your life, this characterizes who you are, those who do such things, listen to this, this is a really stern warning, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a statement of profound judgment upon all those who will not repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is not available to those who live like this, and, and that's exactly what we see. We see in Genesis 19 an Old Testament depiction of a city called Sodom 
who are consumed with the works of the flesh. Everything we just read about in Galatians chapter 5 and more characterized this, this ancient city of Sodom that God will judge. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And instead, as we see, and as many of us already know, God will actually rain down fire and sulfur as an act of total judgment upon this wicked nation. A picture of what he will one day do to the world when he returns in glory. This chapter records God's judgment on this morally bankrupt Canaanite civilization, but it also provides a severe warning for every generation that follows to flee the judgment to come. And invites all to be rescued from this just judgment of God. So, yes, this is a heavy message with a, dealing with a heavy topic, but there is a lot of hope here. There is a lot to be thankful for, because in this passage, not only do we see the, the just judgment of God, we see the beautiful mercy of the Father. The God who rescues from judgment. I want to walk through this passage in four kind of sections. And here's how I want to kind of lead us into it. Because the judgment of God is coming, you must do four things. First, you must be ready for the arrival of God. Here it says in verses 1 through 3, the two angels, they came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. In the previous section, in Genesis chapter 18, a few weeks ago, we saw this. God had actually appeared to Abraham. Uh, three visitors appeared to Abraham in, in kind of a similar fashion. Abraham was sitting in his tent under the oaks of Mamre, and, and then all of a sudden, these three, what must have been majestic figures, just appear. And he leaps up and hastens towards them, and he welcomes this in with this incredible hospitality. I mean, it's almost as if he's ready for their arrival. And in a similar way, Lot, the nephew of Abraham, is being paralleled with him, though to a lesser degree. He's like Abraham in some ways, which helps us understand why he's going to be rescued in this passage. One of the visitors had stayed behind with Abraham to explain what he was going to do, that he was going to destroy the city. But now these two visitors have arrived, and they find Lot here in Sodom. Now, just really quickly, let's just remember how Lot got here. In chapter 13, Lot and Abraham, remember their herds had grown to a huge size and, and uh, there was squabbling and division between the herdsmen, so they decided to go their separate ways. Lot, or excuse me, Abraham gave Lot first choice. Lot looks out and he's, remember, he's kind of being uh, kind of viewed as another Adam and Eve. He looks out and he sees this valley and it's, it's lush like the garden of God. It looks like Eden. He sees it and he takes it for himself. 
Lot moves towards Sodom, and he kind of begins first by living on the edge of Sodom, and then we find out a little later after chapter 13 that he's now living within Sodom, but now we see he's progressed even further, and he's at the city center, so to speak. He's sitting at the gates of Sodom, and here's what this likely means. He has fully immersed himself in this culture, so much so that he's likely now actually in a position of power and authority. It was the elders of the city who would sit at the city gate in a kind of judicial fashion. They would render judgments for the people who would come with problems. They were respected in the city. And so we have this picture of this man, Lot, who's so immersed in the city that it's going to be very hard to disentangle him from the city. That's what I want you to see. But at the same time, there is a sense in which he's ready to receive these men. There's a a quickness and a speediness and an urgency. Now, and he's being contrasted with the people of the city. Nobody else does what he does. He leaps up. He runs towards these men. He bows before them, and he pleads with them to come into his house rather than stay in the city square. Now, Moses never explicitly states that Lot is in sin. I don't know if you've caught that. But he certainly implies it and expects us to get the sense that something's wrong with Lot. He's taking what he shouldn't take. He's immersing himself in in a city of wickedness. And I I think we saw this earlier, uh, that he's choosing to dwell in the city with the wicked instead of in the land with the righteous. So here he is. These men come towards him, and we need to see while, while he's immersed in the city, he does stand out amongst its citizens. Actually, Peter, in first, excuse me, 2 Peter 2, verse 7 and 8, tells us something unique about him. Listen to what it says. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, just think about that for a minute. If God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So Peter gives us a window into Lot. He he is righteous in a sense that he's contrasted. He's, He's different. He's set apart from the citizens in Sodom. And day after day, he's, he's seeing the wickedness. He's hearing about it. I mean, he's living amongst it. And his righteous soul, he knows there's something wrong. He knows it's wicked. And his soul is being tormented within him day after day after day. And there's almost this picture with Peter that he's waiting. When am I going to get out of here? When is the Lord going to come back? Perhaps he saw these two men and he recognized immediately something was different about these men. There was a very good chance, much like with Abraham, that Lot saw these two men, something was different, something was unique, there was something righteous about them. They were from God. It's more than likely that there's a sense in which he was ready for the arrival of God, and that's what these men represented. They represented God. They were messengers from God. And yet in spite, listen, in spite of his denunciation of of gross evil, he himself liked the lifestyle of Sodom. He, He liked the good life. He liked what this wicked city had afforded him, the the comforts, the ease, the blessings and benefits. And so he's in the world 
And he's actually partially of the world. He rejects much of it, but he loves part of it. In other words, he's like many Christians today. Maybe he's a lot like us. Maybe we're a lot like him. He's immersed in a culture that has thrown off all restraints. He's living in a decadent society of self-indulgence and sin. It is unjust and oppressive. It is sexually promiscuous, permissive, and perverse. Sound familiar? Perhaps that's why he was so eager to approach these two men. They just stood out. They were so obviously different. He's ready for their arrival. And he offers them hospitality. And you know, as, as we look at how he responds in this moment, this arrival of these two men, they remind us, and they're intended to, by the way, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is repeated often in the New Testament to help us be ready for the arrival of God when he comes in judgment of the earth. This story reminds us, does it not, that God promises will be fulfilled. Whatever he promises, God will do. We often think about that in terms of the blessings that God promises, right? We, we go, yes, God's promised so many good things. He will be faithful. But we rarely think of that in terms of the judgment God has promised, and yet is equally true, is it not? God will be faithful. He will come again. He will judge the wicked one day. And so this forces us to consider our own readiness for the arrival of God. Jesus tells numerous parables in the New Testament, teaching us to be ready for his return. In Matthew chapter 24, paralleled in Luke chapter 12, here's what Jesus says, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be ready is the message here. So she said, how can I be ready? Let me just give you three quick ways that you can be ready for the arrival of God. First, believe he is coming. I think there's a sense in which Abraham believed that there was going to be judgment upon the wicked. But let me press this into us. That the way we ready ourselves as Christians is that we believe that he will come. We believe God will do what he promises. We believe he is returning and our belief is demonstrated in a similar kind of way with a welcome and an embrace of God. Secondly, bow before he comes. Listen, it's not just enough to believe he's going to come. What God demands of all people is that we bow before him. Now, listen, he bows before them, recognizing that there is something superior about these men. I, I don't know that he fully believed they were representing God, but either way, he knew he was inferior. Listen, every one of us, if you are going to be ready for the arrival of God, you must bow before he returns. Do you want this fascinating? Um, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize that? that listen, that is not a statement of devotion. It is a statement of confession. Every knee is going to bow one day. Here's the real question. Will you bow now when you have the chance in, in belief and in humility and in joy? Or will you bow later when it is too late? When there can no, be no rescue of your soul? When you bow in, in 
sad and shameful recognition that the king has returned, but you refused. You refused to bow when he called. Lastly, beg him to come. Beg him to come. I love, I love the picture here of him pleading. These guys are like, look, we'll be fine. Like, they know they're angels. They know they'll be fine in the city square, but he's, he's like, I want you to come into my house. I, I need you with me. I think he wants to protect them, but I love that he urges them strongly to come into his house, and let me just allow that to be a bit of an application. Listen, there ought to be, if you're going to be ready for his arrival, there ought to be a begging for him to come. First, listen, to come into your life. God, I believe in you. I'm bowing the knee to you, and I want you to come and make me new. I want you to rip out my heart of stone and to to give me a heart of flesh that loves you and lives for you. I need you to do that, God. But secondly, listen, in a separate way, we need to beg for the return of Christ. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul, as he ministered in the New Testament, he so frequently ends letters or speaks like this, come, Lord Jesus, come. And listen, don't, don't you see... When you are so desiring and longing for and begging for the return of Jesus, it changes the way you live in the present moment. When you're praying, God, I want you to come back and I want you to be vindicated. I want you, Lord, to remake this earth. I want your glory to spread from sea to sea. I want you to return, Jesus Christ. Then here's what that does for you. It reorients you. You're constantly ready for his return if you're constantly begging for his return. Secondly, because the judgment of God is coming, you must be resistant to the grip of sin. I want you to see the pervasive and powerful grip of sin here amongst the citizens of Sodom, but also the grip of sin we'll see in the life of Lot. Verse 4, but therefore they lay down the men of the city the men of Sodom, sorry, before they lay down, uh, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. This is is unbelievable depravity. This is, this is something I think we can't even fathom. The powerful and pervasive grip of sin here is astounding. It has spread like gangrene, infecting the entire city. You remember the conversation that, that Abraham had with God? 
God, if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare the city on on behalf of those 50 righteous? Yes, I will spare. How about 45? Sure. How about 40? Okay. How about 30, 20? What about 10, Lord? If there's 10 righteous people in this city, will you spare it, Lord? Yes, for 10, I will spare it. What do we see here? Everybody in the city this is, look at the language. This is, this is amazing. Just look at what he says. Both young and old. All the people to the last man. Man, he's making a point here. There are none righteous. No, not one. Well, maybe just one in the case of Lot. Who has apparently believed in the God of Abraham and received a righteousness from God that is not his own. And as a result, he has resisted, at least in part, the grip of sin that has consumed the city of Sodom. They have seen these men, the the citizens of Sodom, and now they want to know these men. That's the Bible's polite and euphemistic way of saying they want to have sexual relations with them. The law of God later, the people actually who would have been reading this because they had received it from Moses along with the law, they would have later seen that God would affirm and codify what God had already established at the very beginning, the first chapter of the Bible, that sex is meant for marriage, and marriage is between one man and one woman. Amen, we can cheer for that. This is the culmination, though. What we see happening here, it's the culmination of the works of the flesh. It's the culmination of their oppression and pride and rebellion. They see these angels, and obviously there's something appealing and and attractive about them. there's, There's something unique about them. But instead of bowing to them, do you see what they do? They they don't want to follow them. They don't want to ask questions to figure out if maybe these are representatives of God Almighty. They want to take them and use them. There's a strong parallel here with Genesis chapter 6. Romans 1 describes the escalating nature of sin in a culture, and it's fascinating that as you see a culture that's kind of given over to sin, as they begin to kind of just spiral out of control in their sin, it's fascinating that as they get to the final stages of that, 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 you know, that sinfulness and depravity, it is homosexuality that is highlighted as being one of the greatest evidences of a culture being given over to their depravity. But really interestingly, you know that the, the path that you follow in Romans 1, it doesn't end there with just talking about homosexuality. You want to know where it actually culminates? That those who practice those things give approval to those who do likewise. So you see, it's not just that it's happening in the culture. It's become something that is approved and affirmed. It's not just tolerated. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not tolerated anymore. It's actually something that if you don't participate in and practice and affirm, you're not tolerated anymore. That's the picture of Sodom. Did you see that right there? They're like, here's Lot. And Lot's like, guys, 
hold on, don't do this wicked thing. And they say, this guy, like they mock him. This guy, this foreigner, now he thinks he wants, you know, this guy has come in from the outside and he's now being our judge. Guess what, buddy? It's going to be worse for you when this is over. I think this is an unbelievable picture of wickedness and I think it it teaches us some really, really important lessons. I think it shows us that if sin is not resisted in your heart, it will escalate in your life. Okay? Just learn that. If sin is not resisted in your life, in your heart, excuse me, it will be escalated in your life. It progresses. It naturally does. You you see this, by the way, let me just use sexual sin since it's it's present in this text. You see this with with pornography, with sexual sexual sin, right? It it always begins with like just lustful glances, doesn't it? That's how how it all starts. Lustful glances, and then it moves into maybe some form of pornography, and then it moves in, you know, that, that becomes, pretty soon you kind of get used to that and acclimatized to that. And so what happens with people who struggle with pornography and any kind of addiction, it's like a drug, they become acclimated to it, and they need something more. They need something harder. They need something more depraved. And so they, they go down a path of, of escalating depravity. And there's a warning there for all of us. Don't become desensitized to sin in your life. It's rightly been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, it'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. But here, in Sodom, they are willing to go, they are willing to stay, and they are willing to pay. It has eroded, sin has, their ethics. It has killed their conscience. It has murdered their morals. And it will do the same to you if you do not resist its grip in your life. Even as a Christian, listen, indwelt by the Spirit of God, the New Testament warns, listen, that you can quiet the conscience and quench the Spirit. John Owen, the Puritan writer, famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You cannot be resistant. You say, well, how, how, do I, how do I resist? You cannot be resistant, listen, if you are not first repentant. You have to see how serious your sin is. You have to be broken. You have to be brought low. You have to recognize that your sin is a, an offense against Almighty God. You have to see that your sin is actually worthy and deserving of God's just judgment. And when you get there, the goal is not then to fix yourself and simply bootstrap it through the, this life, resisting sin in your own strength. It is to fall on your knees in humble repentance before the Lord God Almighty. Lot's pleas for righteousness are ignored. But then he does something stunning and something that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. I'm not going to lie to you. This is, this is one of the most staggering kind of portions of this story. Forget about the guys who are trying to rape angels, which is bizarre and crazy. Lot, to try to pacify them, offers them his two virgin daughters. And this just helps us see, listen, Lot is not that great of a guy. Kenneth Matthews, commentator, he says this, Lot is caught in a web of the most vile of circumstances and he opts for a way out that can never salvage any good. 
He surely offends his own sense of right behavior while attempting to save face with the strangers. For a moment, it is Sodom that has taken up residence in Lot's soul. They turn on Lot. And the implication here is that they now saw a different side of Lot. Oh, oh, Lot, you were fine. You were fine to to enjoy all the benefits of this society until now. You wanted to be here, Lot. You, You gave every appearance that you were one of us, but now, now you choose to turn on us? There is a cost to standing up against sin and wickedness. This is an important statement for our day and age. This is an important statement for us as the church, as the people of God. There is a cost for standing up for righteousness. There is a cost to standing against sin. But that, listen, church, you need to hear this. Did you, this is part of our job. It's part of why God's left us here. J.C. Ryle said that there is a cost of being a true Christian. He said this, it will cost you your self-righteousness, it will cost you your sins, it will cost you your love of ease, and it will cost you the favor of the world, but such is the cost for standing for righteousness. So good. These, These citizens of Sodom who so desperately want to indulge in this wickedness, they're struck blind. The angel's like, okay, we've had enough. They pull Lot back in, and they supernaturally strike these men with blindness. And if you think that's going to work, which it should, listen, if somebody strikes you with blindness in a moment, I suggest you just stop sinning on the spot, okay? It's a good, it's a good idea. But these guys... They just keep at their sin. They're so depraved. They're like ravenous animals foaming at the mouth for their sin. And they, are, they, they, they literally wear themselves out, groping at the door. They're not quitting. They're not giving up. They want their sin. They want it now. They don't care. Don't stand in my way. No wonder God is going to judge this place. And I can't help but think that this is in some ways a prophetic word for our time. How similar is the world of Lot to the world we inhabit? Listen, Christian, you're going to be fine as long as you remain a secret Christian. You know that? You'll be fine. You'll skate your way through this life. You'll make it through, relatively speaking, unscathed. You can play the game. You can appease the world around you. You can do what they ask you to do and you can kind of, kind, of, kind, of, kind of walk that thin line, that ethical, moral line and you can kind of try to blend in. But listen, if you want to be a true Christian, if you want to be a Christian like Jesus calls you to be, you will stand out in an unrighteous world because you are committed to righteousness and the glory of God. And when you choose to do that, you just need to know it's not going to be easy. The moment you decry the immorality and unrighteousness that is heartily approved and promoted all around you, you will become public enemy number one. We're seeing this all around us. I know some of you, you've experienced this. Your job's been on the line. You're alienated from your coworkers or your friends simply because you have said, I I won't do that. That goes against my faith. That's not God's design. We cannot 
allow our conscience to be tormented by what we see, listen Christian, and keep silent any longer. A soft approach in Sodom will not do. But likewise, listen, this is not just about, I'm not even asking you to condemn the world. Listen, that's not your job. The Spirit of God convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, we, we play a prophetic role, the church does, in that. Because we uphold standards of righteousness. But listen, we cannot love and hold dear what is corrupting and corrosive. It's not just about condemning the world out there. This is about us making sure we've not blended into the world so much that we're actually, you know, like, like we want to have a pet tiger. If you want a pet tiger, you're crazy. You're like, oh, it's so cute when it's a little tiny tiger. Yeah. Right, you pet it, you play with it, you hold it on your lap, and then in six months, you turn around and it eats you. (laughs) That's what sin does. You coddle sin, you play with sin, you pet sin, you treat it as if it can hang around in your life. It will devour you, it will destroy you. You need to be resistant to the grip of sin in your own life especially if you're going to stand for righteousness in a world that loves sin. Third, because the judgment of God is coming, you must be responsive to the mercy of salvation. Look at verse 11. We'll read a long section here all the way down to verse 29. It says, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city. Bring them out of this place For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord, I love this, listen, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape for the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which simply means little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. 
And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The word flee or escape, as it's translated in the ESV, is used five times in this section, telling us the heart of this passage. It is a call to respond to the mercy of God. It is a call to flee the wrath to come. It is a call to escape from the judgment of God. The judgment is coming, and it's coming soon, and the angels offer to save Lot's family, which is mercy. His sons-in-laws, he tries to warn them. They think he's joking, and I just can't help but think how many will be swept away in the judgment because they simply don't take it seriously. But this is so stunning. Early in the morning, the angels actually have to drag Lot and his family from Sodom. Why? Because Lot lingers. (laughs) Even though the destruction is coming, the lure of sin in Sodom is so strong upon Lot and his family that they have become comfortable with the sin of Sodom that that it's so hard to think about leaving it all behind. And this is the greatest mercy of all. Lot lingers because there's some attachment in his heart to this wicked city still, and God still saves him. should have left him. If I was God, that's what I would have done. Fine. Tried to warn you. Tried to save you. Thank goodness I'm not God. We talk a lot about grace, and we're going to talk about it in just a moment, but grace, we often say, is getting what you don't deserve. And if grace, which I think is true, is getting what you don't deserve, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Lot lingers, and he needs to be dragged out. And then it gets even crazier. He has the audacity to question the plan of God, to make a request. (laughs) Well, God, I don't really like where you want me to go. Can I just go to this little place over here? You know, in in the kindness and mercy of God, he, he obliges it. He doesn't have to, but he's like, all right, we'll let you go to this little city. And as he's dragged out and escaping to the city's OR, it's incredible. I I can't even fathom the scene, but suddenly, suddenly the judgment of God comes raining down from heaven, fire and sulfur. This is not a metaphor. This is real. This happened. The judgment of God was poured out upon this city in total and absolute destruction and power. And suddenly, suddenly, Lot's entire world was gone as well as all the good land that he had once selfishly chosen for himself. 
the narrative says that Lot's wife, while they were fleeing, looks back. And, and she looks back and is instantly in that moment turned into a pillar of salt. How that happened, I have no idea. But it becomes a monument of her disobedience. Why did she look back? She was explicitly instructed, don't stop, don't look back. I mean, these, these messengers couldn't have been any clearer. Why did she look back? It's not quite like, like an accident. You know when you, you drive by and you're like, oh man, somebody sees like, it's really bad, don't look, and then you instantly have to look. It's not like that. It's more than that. Was it because of family that she was leaving behind? Maybe, maybe the pleasure and delights. Kenneth Matthews says this, it was no casual glance or curiosity. The verb for her looking indicates a prolonged, intense gazing at the world. Listen, she had grown to love. And her example is actually meant to instruct us. Jesus actually grabs this story and he says to us, remember Lot's wife. Look, look at the context here. I'll throw it on the, the screen for you again. I'm actually going to back up to verse 28. Luke chapter 20, you got 29. I, I don't know why I left off 28, but I want to read it for you. Likewise, it says this, just as it was in the days of Lot... They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve, here's, here's the clue. You're like, what does that mean? Listen, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Here's the idea here. She looks back, and what we're being told is her life was in this world. Her life was, was, was the stuff that she had and, and the reputation and the friends and she's just so immersed in this world. Maybe it was the ideas of the culture. Maybe it was the religion she was practicing, the gods she worshipped. This was where her life was and she looked back because that's where her heart was and that told her, listen, that told her, you don't want God. You don't love God and if you don't want God or love God and turn to God, you will lose your life in the end. But if you turn from your sin, we just sang it, right? Like, Christ is enough for me. Like, no turning back. That's the idea, right? The Christ calls, follow me, come after me, and don't turn back. Because if you turn back, if you, you don't keep your, your hands to the plow, and you turn back, if you're like Demas, who abandoned the Apostle Paul because he was in love with this present world, it simply reveals that you never had God. You never loved him. You never wanted him. And in the end, you will lose it all. I don't know what it is for you, what maybe the temptation of your heart, what, what's alluring about this world. We all have it. I do, you do. There are things that kind of pull at our heart. Maybe it's money, maybe it's success, maybe it's reputation, maybe it's power, maybe it's pleasure. I, I don't know what it might be for you. Maybe it's different on any given day, but 
Would, would you do this? Would you remember Lot's wife? It's not worth it. Early in the morning, Abraham, he looked down towards Sodom and saw the fierce judgment of God upon the wicked city. And when Christ, listen, when Christ comes to judge the world, it will be sudden and as devastating as Sodom. I want to quickly give you three ways we can respond. How, how can you be responsive to the mercy of God? First, foster a growing detachment to this world by rejecting consumerism and materialism. Okay, remember Lot's wife. First John says this, do not love this world nor the things it offers you for this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. It, it is dangerous and foolish to become attached to this present corrupt world system because it awaits God's judgment. Secondly, fight against the idol of comfort by subjecting yourself to proclaiming truth and righteousness. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? Like the, the, there's something easy and comfortable about keeping silent, isn't there? Or we can kind of, just kind of glide along. But listen, what Lot experienced, we need to experience. When he proclaimed truth and righteousness, when he stood up against wickedness, it was costly and uncomfortable, but that's actually part of the point. God wants to shake us out of being comfortable Christians, and one of the ways that happens is we need to confront our comfortability by putting ourselves in the, the uncomfortable position of actually speaking truth. Speaking righteousness, proclaiming, listen, the truth of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ, even calling something wicked and sinful. Third, fix your eyes on things above by regular exposure to the word of God and the people of God. And this is basic. We talk about this all the time. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The way we fight is we fix our gaze back on God. How do we do that? We look at his word. We see his face. We behold his glory. We let him reorient our gaze away from this world to him and the things to come. We immerse ourselves not only in the word but in the people of God because we are to speak the truth to one another. We are to remind each other this world is not our home. We're aliens. We're strangers. We're sojourners. We're just passing through. Amen? So every Sunday, that's what we do. Guys, this is not your home, okay? It's not your home. You may have a home. You may like certain parts of your home. You may enjoy a lot of blessings here and now, but this world is not your home. It gets better. That's the good news. Finally, because the judgment of God is coming, and this is a quick point, you must be reliant upon the grace of God. Let me just read this, verse 30 through 38. It says, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father." 
So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Just in case you couldn't, you thought it couldn't get more bizarre. Listen, here's what we need to see here. It was difficult to get Lot and his family out of Sodom. But it was more difficult to get Sodom out of Lot and his family. If you've been putting the world inside you, don't be surprised when the world is what comes out in you. And don't be surprised when it's hard to rip it out of you. They, they, these girls, they, they, they come up with a plan that is literally straight out of Sodom. I mean, this would have been acceptable in Sodom. And they do, this is absolutely heinous, and, and they, they're convinced, oh, there's going to be no other men, this is the only way. By the way, they're in this cave, like, this is a, this is a huge fail on Lot, okay? Big time. And it's a huge fail on his children. But what we see here is that God is going to be gracious in the midst of this sin. They get him, like, so drunk that he doesn't even know what's happened. And, and two nights in a row. They... they they have these incestuous relationship with their father and, and this, these incestuous unions, they would end up being, or sorry, producing children that would end up being perpetual enemies of the people of God. It's really fascinating. In fact, this is in effect the rebirth of Sodom in this cave. And what's so fascinating to me is that they do this even after tasting the mercy and grace of God. Isn't that remarkable? God just rescued them. Supernaturally sent angels. They heard the horror of fire and sulfur raining down from heaven. They had been rescued by God and now they have convinced themselves they cannot rely upon the God who's rescued them. They become self-reliant, and whenever you become self-reliant, it's a path to greater and greater sin. How, how foolish to believe that God would save us and not also sustain us. Whenever we revert back to self-reliance, it only leads to problems. I, I love what Paul says in Philippians 4.9. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours in Christ Jesus. And this is sadly how this story ends. We won't hear about Lot again in the book of Genesis. I don't want to say much more about this section other than to say that these three were not saved because they were deserving. Isn't that obvious? They were saved because of God's grace. They actually deserve judgment. That's what this is telling us. They deserve judgment just like the rest of Sodom, but instead they received grace. And you and I, listen, you and I are no different. We deserve judgment, but 
God. Amen? You know what? What's remarkable is that sin and sadness don't get the last word in this story. And our mistakes, listen, no matter how messy, they're not too messy for God to clean up. God is sovereign even over our sin. And what we'll see is that much later in Scripture, we're going to read about a Moabite woman named Ruth. A woman who is an outsider, a woman who is not of the people of God, but she becomes deeply reliant on the God of Israel. Your God will become my God, and your people will be my people. And you know what God does? God not only sustains her, he transforms her life, and then he takes her and he uses her. She, this Moabitess, would be used by God to bring about the birth of the Savior of the world, the one who would rescue us from the judgment of God, Jesus Christ. God wants to rescue you from judgment. That's the awesome news in this passage. And then, listen, if you've been rescued from the judgment of God, he wants to use you to rescue others from the judgment of God. Isn't that awesome news? Because the judgment of God is coming, you must be ready, resistant, responsive, reliant, and the only way you can do that is to receive Jesus, the one who's come from heaven to earth, who hung upon a cross to take the judgment of God in your place. He bore the wrath. He rose victoriously. And all who place their faith in him by grace, listen, can be set free, made new, restored, and used for his honor and for his glory. That is the grace of God. Let's pray that God helps us to rely upon it. Father, we pray that you would help us to truly treasure and love your grace. We pray, Father, that you would remind us today of the seriousness of sin, but God, that you would encourage our hearts with your mercy. You are so merciful, Father. All who come to you, you will not cast off. We are safe from the judgment to come because we are hidden in Christ. Jesus, you've received all the judgment in our place. And for that, we praise you today. We lift our voices now to declare that your grace is truly amazing. Would you receive our praises now? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.